If you will, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Can stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name of For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I don't know about you, but I don't like it when things don't go my way. I think part of the reason that God brings people into our lives, not just our spouses, but our friends, our church, those around us, God uses them to teach us something about who we are. But this idea of the suffering Christian has had different uh, different interpretations and different teachings throughout church history and throughout the years. And I think a lot of it has come from this text. And I think sometimes what has been taught has not been taught correctly. I think sometimes our understanding of what it means to suffer uh, means that we think that we have somehow disobeyed God and let him down. So he's allowing us to suffer through that. I don't know that that's fully what God does every time. Perhaps he may be doing that to teach us a lesson. But we have to understand from this text that does not mean that God is out with vengeance to get back at us for disappointing him. And I think that's what we have to remember from what Peter's trying to teach us here. Because remember, this letter from Peter is a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of hope. Now, to to avoid going down the the heretical road, and this is heresy, the teaching that God does not allow his children to suffer, that everything for his his church means that we are prosperous and, and harmonious, and that God doesn't want anything harmful to come against us, and if it's harmful, it has to be from the devil, and we shouldn't allow that, we should just embrace the word of God, and hallelujah, everything's great. That's a false teaching. I don't think that's what's in this text either. Because I've heard it said so many times over the years that God would never allow me to go through bad things. If it's bad, it's not of God. If it's good, then it is of God. And our definition of that is that if it's good, that means that we're getting more money and that we can sleep late in the morning and that all of our children obey and that our job is perfect and, uh, you know, everything that we would imagine to be good cannot always be what God wants for us to be good. Sometimes I think God does allow us to deal with reality, no matter how painful that can be. And in the end, he's teaching us something. Here in verse 12, Peter began, uh, continues to teach the church. Remember, uh, looking at those verses prior to verse 12, verses 1 through 11, Peter is encouraging the church to embrace the life of Christ because he has changed us and made us into his image And if our mind is aligned with the mind of Christ because it has been regenerated and made new in Christ, then we will be self-controlled. We will love one another. 
because Christ loves us, and that in everything that we do, God is glorified through Christ. Amen? Now, that's, that sounds great. Everything that we do, every, every job that we have been given, every responsibility through the day and through the week, we must give our very best to it and do it as unto the Lord. Amen? No matter how much drudgery is involved in washing the dishes and doing the laundry and mowing the yard and going to work and fixing the honeydew lists and fixing the cars and everything else, we must do everything to God's glory. What does that mean? What does that look like whenever we are faced with suffering in the midst of that? Because suffering comes with our jobs, with our families, with our lives. There is just that life that happens. Verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? Verse 12 here is a clear verse that goes against that false teaching that God does not allow bad things to happen to Christians. Verse 12 right here, I mean, look at it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If we look at the fiery trials in our lives and say, wow, this is not right. Wait a minute, what's going on? I'm a Christian. God loves me. I'm not supposed to suffer. And we act like, what's going on? Is God, did I miss it? Did I make a mistake? Is this Christian life just not worth it? Uh, what's going on here? Because we can look at this with, as if it is something strange. And we could ask God, what are you doing? What? I thought you loved me. I remember when my children were real little. And, and as a father, sometimes a father has to be a dad. And sometimes you've got to correct them and discipline them and tell them no. And sometimes telling them no means a little bit of... Maybe a warm backside. Now, children think it's awful, but really, if you really a good father, a good parent, when you when you give a little bit of warmth to the backside, it's never hard. It's just enough to sting a little bit. But to them, it's just ah, right. And Logan came to me once when he was about four years old, and he had just had a bad couple of weeks. Just every time he turned around, there was something I had to correct him on, something I had to tell him no on. And no, son, you can't do this. And no, son, you better not do that. And he came to me one side and he said, Daddy, don't you love me? I said, yeah, I do. The reason I'm telling you that you can't go and pull the little girl's hair when you're in the nursery at Sunday school, you can't pull her hair because it's wrong and I have to correct you for that. But, Daddy, you know, you said, you said well, right? As children, sometimes we, they look at us and they, want, they, they look at our correction as something strange, but over time of maturity, perhaps we learn what's happening. See, now Christians may feel that suffering and trials stop at the point of our salvation. And that's what a lot of people have been taught in the churches. Come to Jesus and all of your worries will be gone. Come to Jesus and, and everything will be hunky-dory and fine. You know what? Life will be better. Life will be more beautiful. Life will be more glorious in Christ. Amen? But that doesn't mean that our definition in the world of what is good and glorious and peaceful is God's definition of what is good and glorious and peaceful. Christians feel that at the moment of their salvation, everything is going to be so good that we no longer suffer. And so when suffering comes, we question what in the world happened. And so many people who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and claim the name of Christ, whenever the first obstacle hits them, they run away from the church. 
because there was no real change there. There was no real transformation there. Because they went through the checkoff list. And no one told them in that checkoff list, now wait a minute, you're going to, if you come to Christ, if Christ is really doing a work in your soul right now, watch out for what's coming next. No one teaches that. And so the minute, the first, the first time the bad things happen, they run. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he talks about Jesus' suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What Peter's telling us here is that the punishment for sin that satisfied God in Christ is that same punishment and suffering that we as Christians are going to share. Look here in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now that's an odd verse, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice that Jesus Himself suffered for us on the cross. Rejoice because, guess what? You get to go through it with Him. Woohoo! Let's go tell that at the vacation Bible school. Amen? Right? Come to Jesus and get nailed to the cross like He did. Now, how far do you think that sales pitch would go? Now, I'm not saying go and, and, and traumatize children in vacation Bible school with... <laughs> Nailing them to a cross. I mean, that's ridiculous, yes. But think about this. We don't... We want to sell Christianity like we market products. We want to sell Christianity as if it is the next best answer to your life's woes and troubles. Now, is coming to Christ the answer to your life's woes and troubles? Absolutely. But it's not that the, lot, that the woes and troubles are going to disappear because if we are new in Christ, guess what? We share everything that Christ did. And that includes His suffering. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. And in that suffering, we may also rejoice and be glad because in that, God's glory through His Son, Jesus Christ, is revealed not only to us, but to our friends, to our communities, when they see how we persevere through hard times, that gives God glory. Now, do we persevere through the hard times, Christians, or do we sit back and moan and whine? Got any whiners in the room? You see my hands up too? Instead, why don't we rejoice? Now, now you know, there's something really weird about somebody who rejoices in pain and suffering to the point that they look for pain and suffering. But, no, but think about it. This is a teaching that in the church has actually taken a lot of people down the wrong road. Back in the medieval church, back in the early days of the Catholic structures of the church, or what we see now as the Catholic church, there was a, a, a way of teaching called the scholasticism. The scholastics of the medieval church taught that repentance or penitence, penitence was suffering for, uh, for salvation. They taught that penitence was, was made up of three things. Number one, contrition of the heart. Number two is confession of the mouth. And number three, satisfaction of works. 
You have those three working together. Your heart is convicted, contrition of the heart. You then confess with your mouth your sin. And then you go and you pay back God for, uh, for sinning against him through satisfying whatever the church tells you to do. And every time that you go through this process of, of repentance and faith in, the, in this tradition, the works that you are assigned to do by the church were always those works that caused the greatest turmoil and suffering for you so that you paid back God for the sin that you caused. It's called pain penance. The definition here of the scholastic, and the reason I bring this up is because this is still taught today. It's nothing new. Repentance in, in this tradition means that, and this is the definition of repentance. Repentance is to deplore past sins and not commit them anymore. In other words, to deplore past sins and not commit that which is deplored. So in your heart, you must look at your sin and deplore it. You must Look at, down upon it. You must cast it aside. Now, is that true? Sure. Repentance is looking at your faults, looking at your sin, and, and recognizing what that is in the light of God and the truth of the gospel. And you turn from that. That's repentance. To repent is to literally turn from your sin. Amen? But in this tradition and this definition, to deplore those past sins means that you must somehow stir up within yourself this grievance, right? You must grieve those past sins and then you must punish what you are grieving. So it seems like in this tradition here, repentance is a discipline. This is what the traditional Catholic Church teaches, that repentance is a discipline. That it be, and when I talk about disciplines in the church, the, 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 the spiritual disciplines of prayer and of worship and of sacrifice all of these disciplines of the faith are necessary and important, right? Bible study and prayer is a good discipline for the church to practice. Amen? But in this context, repentance now becomes a discipline in this teaching. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily what we need to keep doing is constantly repenting. Now, do we repent of our sin at the point of our salvation? Yes, we do. Do we constantly ask God for forgiveness practically every single day of our life as a Christian? Yes, we do. But is this discipline of repentance necessary in order to forgive the sin? As if somehow we have to do something in order to earn God's favor. I still challenge you, repent. I mean, every single day, ask the Lord to forgive you. Ask your family to forgive you. Ask your co-workers to forgive you. Every time we offend, we are called on by Scripture to make amends for that offense. But this doctrine of contrition, this is what this doctrine is known as. The Catholic doctrine of contrition teaches that in order to earn God's forgiveness, we must actually practice the discipline of repentance. We must actually practice the discipline of wailing against our sin. We must cause suffering in ourselves in order to see what sin costs. So it goes to this tradition of asceticism. If you've ever heard of asceticism, this is where you physically and purposely punish yourself because of your sins. I don't think we need to do any more of that to ourselves once we realize the weight of our sin, do we? 
Because the only way to understand our sin is that the Holy Spirit actually convicts us of our sin, brings us to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we understand what repentance is. Now, John Calvin actually quotes Augustine here on this. St. Augustine was not part of the scholastic movement. He was, he was a father of the church long before the scholastics of the Catholic church. So Augustine is actually closer to the earliest centuries of the church, the earliest fathers of the church. And here's what Augustine says about suffering as a Christian. Here's what he says. He says, the suffering at which you cry is medicine, not punishment, not chastisement, not condemnation, or is chastisement, not condemnation. Do not drive away the rod, he says, if you would not be driven away from inheritance. Know, brethren, that the whole of that misery of the human race under which the word groans is a medicinal pain, not a penal sentence. Now, what is, what is Augustine telling us here? Augustine looks at this idea of suffering as if it is something that God is allowing to continue to teach us, to heal us, to allow us to grow in trust and faith in what Jesus Christ has done. So suffering, according to what Psalm 102 teaches us, and from what Augustine comments here, is that suffering is this cry of medicine. Suffering is not a punishment from God. It is actually chastisement for his children. It is not condemnation for us for for disappointment. So what is Peter teaching us here? If we look here in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in your sufferings, because in that God's glory will be revealed through Christ. He says in verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What does he mean here in verse 13 and 14? Is this suffering that we deal with, this these insults that come against us from those who are not of the church, these insults that come against us from the ungodly, are those insults that actually maybe sharpen us and polish us up a little bit. What, what are these insults coming against? They are insulting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not necessarily personal insults toward us. See, we want to take these insults from the ungodly as personal. We want to take these insults and these persecutions from other people as personal. They don't love me. They don't like me. But really what it is, they're attacking the truth of the gospel. And so God is going to use this as medicine to restore us, to grow us, to bring us closer into His graces and into His favor and into His love and into His maturity. We are, we, this is medicine that allows us to mature in our faith. Faith that Jesus Christ has bought us with His blood. But now look here in verse 15 of chapter 4. How many people do you know that really just, they're, they're victims all the time? You all know somebody like that? They never do anything wrong. Someone else is always out to get them and someone is, it's always someone else's fault. I'm so perfect and I'm so good. How dare you not like me? Y'all know people like that? Peter knew people like that in the church too because look at verse 15. 
14 and 15 go together. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You see, we can confuse the sufferings that we go through with consequences for our own choices. The suffering that Peter is encouraging us to bring glory in and to give praise in is the suffering that is not of our doing. The suffering that we bring upon ourselves in verse 15 is that suffering that we rightly deserve. And so really he's saying, don't claim Christ when you bring on your own trouble. Another word here for meddler is busybodies. Gossips. We got any of those in the churches? We got any busybodies in the churches? Got a few? Trust me, I've still with quite a few. I've had some folks in my career as a, as a pastor in the ministries that that I have had over the years. I mean, they would drive by my house late at night to see if I was still home. And if they didn't see my car, there was a deacons' meeting about it that next week. I'm not joking. Yeah, and we know people in the church, they, they just can't keep to themselves. They've got to get into everybody's business for no other reason but to stir up trouble. Spread gossip. Peter here makes it real clear. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Another translation is busybodies or gossips. If that's what you are doing and the suffering is coming against you for your actions, that doesn't count here. God will allow suffering to come against his children in the church, those who are the righteous and the redeemed, to encourage them and to grow them. But those who are evil and those who are ungodly, God directly brings his wrath and persecution against them in vengeance. That's real direct. That's real clear in the scriptures. We see this in Proverbs chapter 11. We see this in uh, Psalm 102. I'm not going to go there right now, but you can write these passages down. God makes it real clear a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. And the godly, when wrath comes against them, it's not as vengeance. It's actually out of correction and admonition. See, God is not vengeful against his children, but he is going to allow the ungodly to be struck down. That's what Peter's telling us. Because look here in verse 17, 18, and 19. Here's where he really kind of breaks this down. Verse 17, Peter's going to show us how God chastises his children. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 17, Peter is really making a clear distinction here between the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous, God's children and those who are not. He begins here, it is time for judgment to begin where? With you and me. Church, we do not, we do not avoid and get away with whatever we want to get away with simply because we're God's children. See, God chastises his children as a father chastises his. But now those who are ungodly, 
There's a question. What will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, all the calamities which the wicked suffer are actually kind of a... Here's the best way to understand this in verse 17. If those who do not obey the gospel of God deal with suffering and calamities, what are they dealing with? See, all of these calamities that the wicked suffer through actually can be seen as an allegory and a direction, a depiction to us as a kind of punishment in hell. This is the way some scholars look at this. I think this is what Peter's trying to show us here as well. That those who do not obey the gospel of God, look at their lives. Think about this. Those who really do not follow God, who are not bought by the blood of Christ, what do they really look like? Now, we may look on the outside and they may have the greatest polish and the greatest image and all the money in the world and life is good. But none of us know their soul. None of us know what's really what goes on behind closed doors. And there's torment there for so many. Those who are ungodly, who do not have anything to do with God whatsoever, and they just blatantly refuse to obey the gospel, they suffer. And what Peter is showing us here in verse 17 is that when we the godly look upon those who are ungodly, and we actually experience suffering as God allows us to suffer, he's showing us, now wait a minute, Look at what the ungodly have to deal with. That's a warning to the godly about what hell can look like in punishment. But the godly, those who God calls His own, are those that He will protect from that eternal punishment of hell. You see, the only purpose of God in punishing His children is to actually bring them to repentance. If God allows suffering to come against the ungodly, they're not going to repent. That's the very definition of the ungodly. They have refused to repent. They have refused to, dis- or to obey God, to discard their sin. You see, God does not punish by destroying or st- striking us down with a thunderbolt, right? That's, that's an ancient image of the, when the gods are angry, they cast thunderbolts down upon the earth. That's an ancient way of thinking. That's how the, the ancient primitive mind used to see the, the storms in the skies. The gods are angry with us and they're casting thunderbolts upon us. But Peter's not telling us that. He's saying that God does not punish this way, but God does chastise his people to encourage them. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11. We read a little bit of that this morning in the opening passages of Scripture. Psalm 11. I'm sorry, Proverbs 11. Beginning in verse 25. Actually, let's begin Proverbs chapter 11, verse 8. Sorry about that. Verse 8. 
The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. There is no guidance for people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now turn over at the last. Let's look at verse 30 of Proverbs 11. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? You see, Peter here is actually quoting Proverbs 11, verse 31 here. Proverbs, and in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18, here's what he says. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Because think about this. If the righteous are saved, he makes it real clear. If the righteous is scarcely saved, or another translation is repaid on earth, if the righteous are chastised by God and we are scarcely saved. Now, I don't want to go into the free will doctrine here and saying that we don't ever know if we're saved. There is assurance of salvation. And if we are bought by the blood of Christ, we are guaranteed of that salvation. That's not what this means. What this means is that if the righteous is scarcely saved, that means that if they are repaid on earth by God's chastisement for his correction, then what will become of the ungodly? Because what comes of the ungodly and the sinner? God punishes them with vengeance. We can see this when we look at the story of King Saul and David in 1 Samuel, right? You have two different kings. You've got King Saul. How did God deal with King Saul? He brought vengeance against him. How did he deal with King David and his sin? He chastised him and brought him back into restoration. Right there's a great example of how God does love his children, his chosen people, his church, those who have the heart after God. He will allow the suffering for their benefit, but for the ungodly, he brings suffering to them as punishment. Verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, the, the, the imagery here in verse 19 is you are good in God's will. So if you are suffering according to God's will, then trust, allow your faith to actually take you through this and trust your Creator while continuing to do good in the midst of your suffering. Because I don't know about you, when, when things aren't going my way and I feel like I'm being treated unfairly, I'm going to throw my arms up and quit. Don't you? This is not right. This is not fair. I don't like this. I'm not going to go with, through with it. No. Stop with it. Don't we do that? Peter here is telling us here in verse 19. In the midst of your suffering, allow this to waken up 
your faith in God that I don't like it, but I trust you, Lord. Because what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is depending upon what God is doing. And we trust Him in the midst of it. And we just come drawing nearer. to I don't know about you, but those times that I really, really, really feel the most distant from God are those times that my faith is drawing me closer and closer back to Him. And it's a struggle. And it's difficult. Dr. Stephen Larson says this about suffering. He says, Christianity is not the removal of suffering, but the addition of grace to endure suffering triumphant. You see, this victory over suffering and this difficult world, the victory that we have, is the victory of Christ over sin. And this victory of Christ over sin is victory over the wicked and victory over the fall from the Garden of Eden. That's what all this looks like. That's really the ultimate message in the story here. The suffering that we endure is literally a reflection of how Christ is, has overcome the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. The, Christ has overcome the result of that, the sin and the suffering of the world. You see, the world cries out to God and moans and groans. And it's not out of groans of punishment, but out of groans of growing and seeking a, a, a solution, seeking a restoration, seeking a healing. Do we not live in a world that is crying out for mercy and crying out for correction? Amen. Everywhere you turn, no matter how, no matter where you go, whether someone is, is of Christ or someone is not of Christ, there is something within us that tells us, whether we realize it or not, there's something not right here. Amen. There's something about the world we live in that is not right. There's got to be something else that's right. There's something else that's better. That truth that is instilled in each and every one of us is instilled in us because we are made in God's image and we know that God created all things for His glory. And so when we're going through suffering and persecution, really that's teaching us that there is something better. Amen? And that's really what we're longing for. That's why we look at our circumstances as suffering. This is not right. I know there's something better. And that draws us back into God's loving arms. And we're drawn back into His wisdom. And we're drawn back into His guidance. And we trust Him that all things are working for His good. That's the first thing. So whenever you're going through anything so, uh, difficult, whenever things aren't going right, I'm going to challenge you. Go back to Peter here. First Peter chapter 4 primarily. It's a great text. Now, here's the thing. If we are not in Christ, if we are not righteous and we are not godly, if we're actually defined by Scripture as the ungodly, woe be to you. Let that be a wake-up call to come to Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for the word. As life is just not fair, <laughs> I'm glad that you've reminded us through your servant, Peter, that this is just a wake-up call for us to trust you.
I pray, God, that you would strengthen us and give us all that we need to endure. I pray, God, that you would give us perseverance to persevere in the faith. Not so that we would somehow win any kind of prize, but, Lord, that if we persevere, we can point to you and tell others, I could not endure this without Christ, and it is my Father in heaven that I worship. Teach us, God, how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.